0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi again, and welcome to the New Books in Latino Studies, a channel within the New Books Network. I am your host, Tiffany Gonzalez. Today on the program we have Dr. Max Krockmall, an associate professor in the Department of History at Texas Christian University, Dr. Catherine Bynum, an assistant professor of history at Arizona State University, and Dr. Todd Moy, a professor in the Department of History at the University of North Texas. They are my guests on today's podcast, and they will be talking about the new anthology, Civil Rights and Black and Brown, Histories of Resistance and Struggles in Texas, published with UT Press. Hello, y'all, and welcome to the new books in Latino studies. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today.
0: Thanks for having us. Happy to be here.
2: Yes,
1: thank you, Tiffany. Quite welcome. So, a question that I really want to start off with before we get into the meat of the anthology is: Can you tell me a little bit about your background, your professional and personal background um, as a scholar, as a historian, as a person, if you may?
0: Sure. Well, I'll go first. This is Max. I, you know, I I think for me, I I, I um, well, I grew up in the west, in the west, in Reno, Nevada, uh, and. Had worked for a while in the labor movement before deciding I needed some time to think deeply about um, sort of the intersections between labor struggles and civil rights, anti-racist movements, and other um, movements for social change, uh, and that led me to grad school and and finally to uh, to Texas, where I got to studying um, the the coalition building between African Americans and Mexican Americans uh, across the civil rights era and. Um, that produced my first book, Blue Texas. Um, so for me, you know, I, I I guess I come at these questions with um, sort of both scholarly and activist concerns. I'm I'm curious to learn from the past about um, sort of the nuts and bolts of community organizing and coalition building, and uh, how um, you know activists today can can learn from those stories and and build upon them as we continue to fight for. Uh, social justice, racial justice, economic justice in the, in the current moment?
2: Hey, it's uh, Catherine here. Um, so I guess I, I guess I'll start from the very beginning. I'm from Texas originally. I was born in Austin, but was raised in Denton. Um, I went to the University of North Texas for both my bachelor's and my master's degrees. And for my master's, I ended up working with Todd Moy after going through several different um, areas of study and decided to work with Todd for a variety of reasons. Um, One was his interest in civil rights um, history, which I knew very little about at that time. and decided that I wanted to learn more. And so Todd really opened that door for me. And I moved on and and got my PhD with where Max was my advisor at, at Texas Christian University in Fort Worth. And it was really this project that brought me to my topic for my dissertation, and now my manuscript in progress, which was looking at the grassroots organizing of African Americans and Mexican Americans against police brutality, particularly in Dallas. But a lot of the interviews that I conducted with the project often talked about this issue of police brutality. And It didn't matter who we talked to or even where people were from. It was an issue that had come up throughout several of these interviews. And so that was really an eye-opening moment for me. And when I started to look into a lot of the literature, I didn't see police brutality at the front and center of those stories. And so that's what led me to write the chapter for the book, and then later my, my dissertation and my manuscript in progress, which I'm, I'm working on right now, actually. I'm hoping to get that published within the next couple of years.
3: and this is Todd. Uh I grew up in Atlanta where civil rights history was just kind of in the air. Uh maybe not quite so much in the mostly white suburb that I grew up in 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 Sandy Springs, but I was lucky to have an aunt and uncle uh who I I was and am very close to um who considered themselves followers of Dr. King's and who really uh walked the walk as well as talked the talk. So they um Lived in a community in, in downtown Atlanta, where they ministered to homeless people, and also ran a prison ministry with uh, death row uh, prisoners. And um, I just I spent a lot of time with them. They gave me lots of things to read, and so I feel like I've always been interested in civil rights history. And uh, as I gravitated towards uh, towards this as a career, I always knew that I wanted to study more civil rights history. Um, and so I've done that mainly in the context of, uh, African-American freedom struggles in the South, in the South, the Southeastern United States, um, had never even been to Texas before my dad and brother dropped me off for the first day of grad school in Austin in 1993. Um, so one thing that I really uh, appreciated about this project was that it allowed me to learn much more about uh, Texas history and to stretch my own understanding of people's struggles for freedom and justice.
1: Thanks so much for sharing um, your stories of how they're all seem very intertwined and connected um, and how you all have grown to you know develop these histories of Texas that many of us not until the last, you know, past 20 years, outside academia has these stories of violence and racism are told within communities, of course, within, you know, family around the kitchen table, but actually written within as books has been very rare until recently. And growing up in the area, in the DFW area, we understood, right, that racism was ingrained in that history of the Metroplex. So I would love to know how did the idea, I know there's a digital humanities project, um, the civil rights, black and brown project, that's a house for oral histories, or I think 500, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and I would love to know if you can share with the those listening, how did that develop? What, what were the initial conversations for recovering, for preserving these stories from Black and Brown folks who know that you know Texas is beyond, you know this Republican state beyond thinking that there's no civil rights history. Um, Max, can you go ahead and start that conversation?
0: Sure, thanks, Tiffany. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, for me, I guess I came at it from a few different angles. You know, I, um, I had been at graduate school at Duke University, and I'd had the opportunity to to learn from some oral history projects and practitioners there at the Center for Documentary Studies and at the Southern Oral History Program at, at UNC. And it was interesting in both cases that Texas was kind of um, off the map of the South, right? It, it was sort of understood as being part of the South, but um, but there hadn't been as much research done in Texas. Um, the, the source bases were not as rich. Um, the scholarship was not as rich. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, having, Kind of come to grad school out of the labor movement. I was really interested in thinking about how do we understand the Jim Crow South uh, as it connects with other histories of um, race, racism, and anti-racist struggles, you know, in American history and and particularly in Mexican American studies. And so that led me to Texas as a as a historical laboratory for the questions I wanted to ask about imagining. Um, struggles against racism and economic justice struggles in a multi ethnic multiracial rather than than black and white context. Um, and so I was i had done a fair number of interviews for my dissertation uh, as part of my own personal research. Uh, and then when I began working at TCU in 2011, you know, I, I it was clear to me that just much more needed to be done. And that even my own book was only going to scratch the surface in terms of the really urgent need to collect, um, you know, preserve and 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 share you know, oral histories with civil rights activists all over the state. Um, you know, coming to DFW, it was just remarkable. Here's this huge city that that really didn't have a whole lot of, um, of work done. Of course, uh, there, there were some. And so, you know, I started getting in touch with scholars who were working in the area. Todd was one of them running the UNT program. Um, of course, Marvin Delaney, uh, at UT Arlington had been working on the history of Dallas. Uh, Jose Angel Gutierrez, who was also at UT Arlington had been working on, on uh, Chicano movement and other Tejano histories and his Tejano Voices project. And so we started just getting together and talking about uh, the need to record more of these stories, um, how to not step on each other's toes or duplicate efforts, but, but also um, you know the need to, to really find a way to do many more of them. Um, and soon we, we were in touch with Maggie Rivas Rodriguez as well from from UT Austin, from the Voices project, uh, you know, really a leader in doing oral histories with uh, Latinas and Latinos in the United States. Um, and eventually from there, you know, uh, uh, you know, those early conversations turned into let's find some money. And so we, we wrote a national endowment for the humanities collaborative research grant. Um, to see if we could get some funding to conduct these interviews, um, and I guess the last thing I'll say quickly, and then hand it off to my friends here, um, is that for me the other the other sort of founding idea was that as a researcher I had really struggled to use other people's interviews. Um, that oral history archives seem to, and the practice of archiving oral histories seem to somewhat obscure the the real purpose uh, of oral history, which, you know, in many ways is to expand and democratize the, the historical record and to give people access, ordinary people access to that people's history. Um, but working with interviews was really difficult. Uh, and even when they were digitized or transcribed, it was very difficult to find information that you wanted. And and, and for me as a, as a grad student and then a professor, you know, I had time to dig through all of these interviews, uh, but most people don't. And so one urgent thought from the beginning was can we also as we collect these interviews, create some sort of platform, uh, which became a, you know, a digital humanities project of its own, a, a way in which people could find, um, easily find very narrow subject information, you know, as, as depicted by a number of different narrators, you know, very quickly across the whole collection. And so that was the idea behind our website, which I uh, I think Catherine and, uh, and Todd can talk more about also.
2: Yeah. So my entrance into the project, I started out as a graduate student at TCU in 2014. I had only done a little bit of oral history work prior to that. So I worked um, with Todd at the UNT Oral History Program doing some kind of data entry work, I had conducted a couple of my own interviews for a research paper, but really my experience was 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 pretty bare starting out. But um, as a student of Max's, you know, he was really keen on giving me the opportunity to work for the project from the get-go. So basically when I started TCU, I started working as the administrative assistant, kind of keeping lines of communication between all four directors open, scheduling meetings, you know, just making sure that the day-to-day operations were in in place. And then as we moved forward when we got some money to Start working in the field. We had sort of a pilot program in the summer of 2015, and I was on the hiring committees for those and really got to experience um, how we, you know, hired research assistants that we found appropriate. We were able to launch into several different uh, areas of Texas, I believe it was East Texas and South Texas, and then El Paso. Were our main primary focuses for the 2015 year, and then when we were successful in getting the NEH grant the following year, we were able to then hire many more graduate students as research assistants, and we were able to go into basically all corners of the state of Texas. And I kind of stayed home that second year. I was actually expecting my son at that moment, and um, didn't feel quite up to traveling during those early months of my of my pregnancy, so I managed the home front. And then once we collected um, all of the interviews, and Tiffany, you were right, right. it was over 500 interviews. I managed that day-to-day operation where I was able to train a host of undergraduate students and graduate students at TCU, where we would break these interviews that we received down into these small clips, We would tag them with metadata and we would upload them to our website so that anybody who wanted to go to our site and look up the civil rights movement in their cities or in other cities based on whichever subject area they were interested in they could do that and they could get that information really easily so my experience from this project started off small as an administrative assistant I kind of worked my way into a research assistant position and then ended my time with the project in 2018 as a project manager when we got all of those 500 interviews and we had to decide which interviews were going on the website and and how they were going to be on the website. So I managed that day-to-day operation um, for about three years in total.
3: This is Todd. I, I think Catherine's being a little overly humble about her contributions to the project. Um, and maybe even a, especially that last part of the uh, development of the online site, the digital humanities site, um, which had so many moving parts um, that that required someone uh, making sure that they were all fitting together and all of the, students and grad students who are involved in this clipping interviews and uh providing keywords and metadata uh to make it all come together so max and catherine were responsible for that at tcu and i would i would definitely encourage people who are interested in this subject to take a look at the website it's crbb.tcu.edu where all of those clipped interviews are are organized and, uh, and available for free to anyone who wants them. We had kind of hoped that these would, well, we knew these would be, uh, useful to scholars. We, we hoped that they would be useful to K through 12 educators and maybe to journalists, people like that. Um, so far, I would say the feedback that at least that I've heard, uh, has just blown away my expectations in terms of the numbers of journalists who are using this, uh and the ways that k through 12 teachers are are using this um so all of those are available at crbb.tcu.edu the full interviews unclipped um but transcribed are available at the portal to texas history uh, which is texashistory.unt.edu um so that's the that's the website uh katherine mentioned that uh, in 2016, we had over a dozen research associates who were going around to communities throughout the state doing oral history interviews. Um, And and Max had the great idea of scheduling time for us to get together in the middle of the summer to sort of debrief, and uh, then to do that at the end of the summer. And I think it was literally in the last 15 minutes of, of that last day long meeting, Uh, we were just sort of throwing ideas around and, and the co-directors of the project realized, you know, we have, we have created these experts in particular communities around Texas, uh, experts in the civil rights history of these communities. And wouldn't it be great if we could somehow capture all of that beyond the website? Uh, so we began throwing around the idea of, of doing this edited collection and we decided on a model in which, uh, people who had interviewed in a community would, would write about the history of some aspect of civil rights organizing in that community, uh, whether it's Corpus Christi or El Paso or the Panhandle Plains or the Piney Woods or Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth. Uh, they would just really dig into one particular aspect of, of the civil rights movement in that place. And uh, so people talked about, you know, what issue they might want to take on. Uh, as a collective, we bandied those ideas around. Uh, we then decided on what subjects we were going to cover. People went out and wrote. And then uh, we peered, peer-reviewed one another's chapters and hopefully did so in a way that made the, the themes and, and the style of the writing Uh, more similar than most edited collections like this might otherwise be. That was certainly one of our goals, and hopefully we accomplished it. Um, But that was the genesis for the book. And so we worked on that for what seemed like a lot more than five years. Uh, But we we did finally finalize that and, and publish it with the University of Texas Press here at the end of 2021. So Civil Rights in Black and Brown, the book is available at at fine bookstores, at least through Texas, hopefully everywhere.
1: Of course, I believe they can find it at UT. Um, I don't want to say Amazon, but I'll say Amazon. Um, I'm sure they can. people that can order it through their local libraries as well, especially um, I would love to know, and I'll get to this question in a little bit, but I also want to commend y'all on doing the work, going into these communities. You know, building a reciprocal relationship with activists and not being extractive. Um, I came to know about this work when I was a graduate student. I think I'd already met Catherine, um, briefly met Max. um, And I think Catherine's the one that actually told me the work that was going in traveling to different areas and conducting these oral histories. And I believe y'all have done such a fantastic job of making it reciprocal uh, with these folks in these different communities across Texas and being, you know, respectful, and showing dignity um, to their stories. And to answer your question, Todd, I think y'all did a fabulous job with this anthology and how it's broken down. I mean, it's almost like the Bible of of Black and Brown Civil Rights of Texas, with 15 essays, and they're extraordinary, um, how they're broken down thematically, and phrasing it, right, as the long struggle of Black and Brown liberation. And that's something that Not many have actually connected, not many scholars uh, that write about civil rights have connected it or use that type of language in relation to these movements for black and brown um, liberation struggles. So I think y'all did a great job, Todd and Max and Catherine. So thank y'all so much for the work. I want to turn it around and ask if you can share any fond memories of when you were in the field conducting these oral histories that really struck you or that were just memorable um or shocking while d- conducting these oral histories
0: well sure i guess i'm first um and thank you tiffany for those kind words you know it it, it um it was really a, a learning process for all of us uh i think it was really an incredible opportunity to get to be in the field and, and building these relationships uh with organizers and activists you know all over the state uh and i think for me and todd uh probably in particular, uh, and our colleagues, having the opportunity to get to be out in these places, um, mentoring other other scholars and being part of their developing their craft of oral history and um, getting to go and sit in and watch their interviews and, and try not to chime in too much, <laughs> uh, but then, you know, kind of debriefing afterwards, what did we learn? What, what questions do we wish we had asked? So there was just, there's a million great memories of, in terms of being in the field and Um, And and I wanted to go back real quick, too, that Todd mentioned our our retreats where we kind of talked through what we were learning. Uh, Those were really powerful for me also in that um, I think, you know, a lot of the key themes that appear in the book uh, were were emerged at our midsummer retreat. You know, we asked the question, what are we learning so far? And it was clear that um, we were able to chart the contours of Jim Crow and Juan Crow segregation in the state in ways that... Really hadn't appeared in print before that we were learning about um you know that we were learning about whole movements that had had never appeared in the newspapers because they were blacked out from from local press coverage Um, we were learning about just the ubiquitous nature of state-sanctioned racial violence um you know and the various ways in which that was enacted against african americans and mexican americans and all the ways in which people creatively resisted and fought back so um for me, just the moment of actually coming together and sharing those stories uh, as a research team was really powerful, um, and also just about the um, we spent quite a bit of time just kind of decompressing and, and debriefing, um, sort of the collective trauma that we were learning about from from our narrators, and that um, in second you know second hand that many of us were experiencing in terms of. Uh, you know, the, the, the painful work of listening to and, and, and hearing these stories and, and, um, asking, trying to stay focused and ask follow-up questions when people are sharing really, um, difficult stories with you. So that, that was really powerful. Um, okay. I'll just quickly share one other specific, which, which I was thinking about earlier today as well. Um, I, that first summer, Sandra Enriquez and David Robles and I went to interview Pauline Valenciana in, in, in Fort Worth and, um, and Pauline is an incredible human being. She she yeah. was very active in uh, Mexican-American and Chicanx political efforts uh, in women's organizings, in um, in commemorative efforts such as the DSC parade that she helped get started in Texas and later the Cesar Chavez committee I mean, in Fort Worth. And um, and it was just a wonderful interview with her in all ways. Uh, but it was my memory of it was really strong for many reasons. But one was that she um, she talked all the time about how, I mean, over and over again, about how she was fired for her activism. You know, she was involved with the War on Poverty and worked for a bunch of different anti-poverty agencies, and she kept being fired from her job. Um, she talked about getting in conflicts with very, um, you know, prominent men in the in the Mexican-American and Chicano struggles in Fort Worth. And, and you know, and she named names and talked about these conflicts, and and it was really powerful to hear that. And she talked about the price that she paid, not just in losing her job, but but, you know, the the fact that late in life she was, um, you know, she she didn't get rich off of her movement activism. And um, and then, you know, after a couple of hours, I think we were all rather drained. And and we we said thank you. And we turned off the camera and we took some photographs. And and then as we were leaving, um, we were surprised that Pauline was literally chasing us down the hall down the elevator out into the parking lot because she had more things still that she wanted to tell us about this remarkable life. And and it struck me. Um, yeah, how much folks give and how how hard it was to try to um, capture a life history in, in what really boiled down to in many cases just a couple hours of, of interview. Um, but that interview was especially important to me because her daughter was also there and then after Pauline passed away. Her daughter called me and said hey that interview you guys did was such an important highlight for mom and her last bits of of her life and and we were able to draw on the interview as part of a community remembrance for pauline as well so that was all just to me um a great example of of the power of oral history to bring people together to set the record straight um and to really uplift these stories that otherwise would have been lost
2: Yeah, Max makes some really great points. That also struck me when I was out in the field. So I was primarily um, assigned to East Texas. So we were in Dallas for a few days. We were in Tyler and Marshall. And then we moved on to Bryan, College Station. And we're kind of driving back between there and Prairie View and Huntsville, which were about an hour away. And I, I have a lot of the same memories, just how... Excited people were that we were coming, and how they were oftentimes calling friends or family members to get us interviews. Everyone was more than willing to help us out in this project. And just that sense of community and camaraderie was really. Special to me, and even a lot of the people that I interviewed, and especially more so since I'm working in Dallas, I've gone back to several of the people that we interviewed and I've maintained really close relationships with them. So we, you know, we don't talk very often because we're all really busy, but. I, you know, I'll get emails from some of them and they'll email me back and, you know, if I ask them for anything and, you know, sometimes we just like to call and catch up. And it's, it's a really remarkable experience just working with so many d- very different people, people that I absolutely admire for, you know, just like what Max said, like someone like Pauline who, you know, puts so much on the table so that so many other people would be able to benefit later on. Um, that's really powerful, but just the one thing that, um, it just kind of diverged from this very uplifting tale was our experiences in Huntsville, Texas, I think were the most shocking to me. Um, I sort of pictured Huntsville like, I don't like any part of East Texas. I wasn't expecting it to be as rigid, rigidly, um, racialized as it is, Um, we had we that was really the only place where we struggled to get people to talk to us and not necessarily because people didn't want to share their stories because they absolutely did. And the interviews that we got from there um, suggested that. But because so many that entire economy of Huntsville is pretty much run by the prison that's there and then also by the university. And so there's a lot of fear that, you know, they will be harassed, you know, get fired from their jobs. I know of one individual who, um, you know, had been active in the 1960s in voter registration drives and was essentially run out of town. He had to go to Houston for a little while for refuge. And when he came back and he participated in a symposium on the civil rights movement in Huntsville, he woke up the next morning and his lawn had been trashed. Like, you know, his rose garden had been all cut up and people had thrown bottles and and just garbage just all throughout his front yard. And he traced that back to him speaking about his experiences in the civil rights movement. And we experienced that same sort of hostility in, in some parts of the city as well when we were there to conduct interviews. And so that was a real eye-opening moment that even though that some of this stuff happened in, you know, the 1950s and 1960s, there were still real consequences for people speaking out against it. And so we had to tread that line very carefully and and do it very, you know, and with dignity and, and in a way that you know, we wanted to, of course, honor people and their histories, but then also not step over any sort of boundaries um, that may have severe consequences for them as individuals.
3: When you do this kind of work, you you meet so many great, interesting, um, admirable people. I, I think Catherine said that um, she really admires her, uh, so many of you the people that that uh, she interviewed and that she wrote about you you can't help but do that and so um you, you there's so many positive memories like that um, of individual interviewees but also of the community partners that we that we partnered with to help make this possible uh Catherine just mentioned Brian College Station so I have fresh in mind our experience with the, uh, Brazos Valley African-American history museum there, uh, which gave us their facility and said, you know, use it and do interviews here, however you want to do it and, uh, put us in touch with people. And, um, I just have such great memories of that. Uh, I also have memories like, um, unfortunately the day after I left that project, I had to go to Atlanta, um, the the next morning, Catherine and her research partner Moisés Acuña Garola uh, started texting me that we're in we're in Prairie View and there are news trucks all over the place. Do you know what's going on? I had no idea what was going on. Uh, but within a couple of hours, the news came out that they had found uh, Sandra Bland's body in the county jail. Um, so that experience of of doing this kind of history and that kind of present really just slammed home. And um, it certainly made me think that this kind of work was even more necessary than I thought it was before. Uh, it also made me think that the, that the history we were documenting was not over yet. It was somehow unfinished and ongoing and uh, had some some pretty profound thoughts about that at that time and since.
1: That was so chilling reading Moises' essay and how this uh, volume starts off with, is with his, um, aside from the introduction, is with Moises' essay. And it was so chilling to see, right, how that story of Sandra Bland at that moment when he's in, now hearing it from Utah, how it is all certainly interconnected and cemented of how important it is to bring these histories to light. And, you know, living, you know, momentarily in Bryan College Station, I think a lot of it, the university and the city tries to um, not, not protect it, kind of protect a more sanitized version of their history. Cause it's not until you actually go into brine where you start hearing histories of of race, of race violence, right. As opposed to college station where the university's at and these dichotomies, you know, they're all interconnected, but they're very different. And it was learning about it and reading about it in this anthology, really shows and should open up the eyes of everybody else that reads it. You know, Texas has a deep history that still needs to be rectified. And I'm wondering, now that you all have done the work of conducting the oral histories and writing these histories for publication, have any of these cities or towns or areas come to rectify the injustice that have been done to black and brown people?
0: Well, the book's only been out a couple of months, so we're not there yet. Um, but, you know, we are in a moment right now where a lot of communities are taking a more critical look at their own history. And, um, you know, I'm very hopeful that these these case studies will help to inform that process in different local communities. Um, you know, we're, of course, facing the ongoing onslaught of, of corona. Uh, but um, if COVID allows, I think we're hoping to try to do some some book talks and events uh, in collaboration with our community partners in, in, in some of these communities and and maybe take that first step of sparking a conversation, uh, you know, using the histories, inviting the people who participated yeah. as, as narrators to be there and join the conversation um, and, and you know, really see where it goes. But I think to your point, Tiffany, or what you said earlier, right, Texas just has so far to go, uh, you know, I, it, it seemed obvious when when I was writing the introduction, but I still had to state it, you know, that Jim Crow existed here, that that Juan Crow existed in Texas um, and that people fought back, that they resisted it, that they exerted agency, uh, that they built these vibrant movements. I mean, none of these have been acknowledged in the official histories of Texas or in the booster stories that, that, you know, economic development agencies and city officials tell. So, um, you know, I know that Todd's chapter on Tarrant County is being read right now by various groups in the city that are working uh, and in the county on... um, on racial justice issues. And I'm, I'm very hopeful that that will happen other places. Uh, you know, Catherine's wonderful work on Dallas, I think is, is poised to make an impact there, um, especially as we get more and more of it. <laughs> and um, and yeah, you know, um, some others maybe are, are better studied, but we, we were really excited to see, for example, in Houston, that um, a piece that Samantha Rodriguez put together uh, that was um, pulling from her chapter and her work, her interviews with Maria Jimenez and others, you know, we're featured there in, in the Sunday issue of the newspaper. And, and so I think I think this book is entering the public realm and will continue to do so. And, and hopefully, you know, we can all keep building on, um, on the volume itself to, to do the kind of work you're talking about.
2: Yeah, I just want to echo, you know, what Max has said, that even though the book has only been out for a few months, I mean, I'm teaching not a civil rights history course, but a, a course called Race, Crime, and the Law that deals a lot with the civil rights movement. And I've had students ask about, well, what does Texas look like? What is happening in Texas? And, and I say, well, just so you know, we have this new book out and you're gonna find everything you need to know about Texas and the civil rights movement in it. So it's, it's really cool to have that. And for my students who see my name, as you know, one of the authors in that book. That's also very humbling and very um, exciting to be able to recommend the, that they read my work. Um, but you know, it, it's in terms of like what sorts of changes that we hope to see in the future or are seeing. I think the year 2020 brought so many of these issues into the forefront of discussion, um, and we're starting to see maybe a little bit of of going back. Um, on some of those what we thought 2020 could produce for the future. Um, you, you know it's it's still early in that development. this is something that I think as as activists as as historians, as as writers as journalists that we're all going to have to continue to pay attention to as a lot of these battles are waged. I mean Texas is again at the forefront of many different, laws that have been passed, whether that's abortion rights or voting rights. And it's not just Texas. I mean, 19 other states have passed other types of um, limiting voting rights for, you know, predominantly black and brown populations in those states. So um, we just have to make sure that we, you know, keep participating, that we keep telling these stories, that we keep acknowledging that these are um, moments of resistance and of struggle as part of the title and just keep plugging forward.
3: We're obviously in a moment where, um, these histories are contested. Um, maybe we've always been in that moment and, and it's just more obvious and out front right now, but, um, at the very least, you know, we have, we have, Proved and documented beyond a doubt that that these movements happened and that um that that the people we write about existed and they did what they did so that you can't say anymore that texas didn't have a civil rights movement and i i i've said before that when i moved to fort worth um i heard from so many people that well fort worth didn't have a civil rights movement because uh we you know we didn't need one we had such progressive, uh, city leaders that they just managed the problems, uh, whatever problems there may have been. And, and there was no protest. Uh, so we never needed a civil rights movement here. And that just made my antenna go up for, for (laughs) civil rights stories in Fort Worth. That, that sounded like a challenge to me. Um, and, and I think that's true of Texas as a whole, as a generalization. Um, so at the very least, uh, we've made it harder for people to uh to try and, and forget these stories and sweep them under the rug. So I go back and forth on whether or not to be optimistic about the um the larger importance of, of this kind of work in the in the public sphere. Um, but at the moment I'm 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 optimistic about it. I don't think we'd be having these arguments about critical race theory, uh so-called critical race theory. If um you know if if one side wasn't worried about um, about winning elections f- freely and fairly uh, i don't I don't think they'd be picking these kinds of battles uh in the history wars if they weren't really concerned uh, about uh what this history really means and so uh hopefully we played a part in in uh knocking down some of those myths and telling true stories about Texas history.
1: Absolutely. I think you hit the nail on the head with saying the what's at stake, right? For those people that are trying to hide these stories, I need to do a temperature check because I get kind of rattled when I hear that. when folks say, especially in the DFW area, Fort Worth, especially when there's no histories of, of discrimination or racial violence, um, because um, I grew up in that Fort Worth area in the suburb of Fort Worth and my high school is constantly in the, new, in the news for its mascot and how these the people that defended it would always be um, going it back to heritage, not hate and these very sanitized versions of what they want to remember and, you know, consciously create amnesia about um So I really appreciate, you know, you bringing that to light and challenging that, you know, those myths, Todd, Catherine, Max, um, that Texas, all areas of Texas have histories of some type of struggle for civil rights, for liberation. And so we're coming the near towards the end of the podcast interview. But I have one last question to ask y'all. What's next for CRBB? Either the oral histories or other projects that have grown out of CRB, I'm interested to know, and I'm sure the public as well. Um, so feel free to share.
0: Okay. I'll go first. Uh, yeah. So um, part of that, I guess, is to, to be determined. Um, you know, we, we burn through grant and foundation funding. So we're not collecting as many interviews or, or processing and cataloging as many interviews. And so we need to do some thinking, I guess, about those next steps in terms of, the project itself. Um, but I will say there's a lot of other pieces growing out of it. Uh, you know, there's, as I mentioned, there, there the many of our research assistants uh, and people who participate in the project are are working on book projects that connect with some of the histories that we we did uh, for the oral history project and that build upon and extend uh, the insights from their chapters. So, of course, Catherine's got her her much anticipated exciting book project on Dallas that is in the works and, and the intersections of policing and police brutality and, and civil rights struggles uh, in, through a multi-ethnic frame there. Um, you know, Sandra Enriquez is working on a wonderful urban history of El Paso uh, that it takes in um, you know, the Chicano movement and her research for the project is one element of that, including her great chapter about um, self-determined healthcare spaces. Um, you know, Joel Zapata's got a wonderful book project on on the long history of Mexicanos on the Southern Plains um, that, of course, draws on uh, on this piece of, uh, you know, includes the, the civil rights and black and brown research. So I think we're going to see, um, and those are just some of the examples, I think we're going to see a bunch of really wonderful new studies of Texas history that, um, that include uh, civil rights and black and brown in one way or another, and that as I mentioned, you know, said, extend and, and build upon, you know, the, what we've published so far, um, and then more immediately, you know, I'm working with my students uh, on a neighborhood history project in, in the Polytechnic Heights area in, in Fort Worth, and we're trying to, um, you know, we're doing oral histories as one component of that project, um, and so it's not clear if that will enter the CRBB collection or not, or what, you know, exactly what form it will take. Um, we're also hoping to add a little bit more to the website and just make it even more useful um, you know maybe add some some exhibits, some digital exhibits, uh, some classroom resources and, and those kinds of things. Uh, so that's the stuff that's on my radar. but um, you know uh, hopefully these sources will be picked up and used by others as well and, and, and taken in directions that we can't even imagine
1: or anticipate. Yeah,
2: so like Max said, I'm currently revising my manuscript in progress, which started off as, which was supposed to just be the chapter for the edited anthology, but then I ended up amassing um, (laughs) many, many, many more sources that I realized that I could actually write an entire dissertation and then later turn it into a book. Um, So that's one way that the project is expanding. And then I'm also... Um, using a lot of the skills that I've learned in project management and also oral history um, to starting an oral history lab uh, within the history department at Arizona State University. So that's going to be launching probably not next year because I will be on leave for part of the year next year, um, but the following year after that. So I think fall 2024 is when we're hoping to get that off the ground and we'll be kind of doing the same type of thing um, in Arizona that we did in Texas, going out across the state and trying to catch these um, histories, these stories of, of resistance against systemic racism and, and injustice. So I'm excited to be bringing that type of expertise and expanding, um, albeit in a different route, but expanding that knowledge and, and sharing it with another state.
3: That's awesome, that's news to me. I'm really happy to hear that. Um, well, I'm, I'm very excited to find out what the answer to Tiffany's question is going to be, um, because I don't know. Um, we, we launched the project in part because we really hope to jumpstart more scholarship on uh, 20th century history in Texas, uh, especially around civil rights issues. And so we're very hopeful that grad students around the state are going to use this database in their own research um, and encourage them to take on similar projects. And I'm really excited to see what they come up with. Uh, I am hopeful that we can we can do a little more to make it even more useful for uh, teachers throughout Texas. So I'm hoping that we can come up with some of those curriculum guides and and things like that. But I've been amazed a few times to hear from people who are using the database in ways that, frankly, didn't occur to me. I had a long conversation with a journalist this week who's who's really digging into it, and um, she's getting stuff out of it that um, I I just didn't expect. And so uh, that's been really rewarding as well. but to answer Tiffany's question, I have no idea what's next, and I really look forward to finding out.
1: Well, thank you all so much for sharing your time with me today um, for this episode. And to those listening, thank you for listening to this episode, which featured Dr. Crockmall, Dr. Bynum, and Dr. Moy. Until next time.